Hello and welcome to episode number 22 of Earth Repair Radio. There's fires now and people being burned alive. There's floods now with people dying. And like you're saying, I think we could get to pre-industrial carbon levels, still have all the same issues with the water cycle and still have a lowering quality of human life because we haven't actually addressed the core concerns. People, particularly in permaculture, get misled by two things. One, holding water high on the landscape. I've seen plenty of situations where people go through great effort to try and build a water measure up high on their landscape in soils that are not appropriate, and so it's never successful when they could have done something low on the landscape that would have been very successful. I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we're going to have an interview with our guest, Zachary Weiss. Zachary Weiss is the founder and president of Elemental Ecosystems, a permaculture design and installation company that's worked in over 20 countries, building water retention landscapes in a great diversity of climate zones. Zach is a protege of revolutionary Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer and is the first person to earn Holzer Practitioner Certification directly from Sepp through a rigorous two-year apprenticeship working on projects in North America and Europe. Zach now spends a lot of his time on the back of an excavator building large-scale water management projects around the world and shares much of his on-the-ground experience with us in this episode. We also talk a lot about the water cycle and its impact on climate change. Because we get into scientific details that run counter to the conventional carbon-centric climate change narrative, I have included a number of scientific references in the show notes that back up many of Zach's assertions in this episode, and I encourage you to read them. So without further ado, here is the interview with Zachary Weiss. All right, how's it going, Zach? It's going really good, really good. How are you doing, Andrew? Good. Uh, I guess you were you came and visited here in Corvallis. That was probably back in September. Yep. 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 Sometime fall. Yeah. So knowing your schedule, I'm guessing that you've probably been all over the planet since then. Um, I wanted to start out to give people a little context of who you are and and what you do and how you've come to be so intimately familiar with the elemental ecosystems of the earth. So why don't you give a little intro, Zach? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just someone who was always interested in nature. And eventually in 2012, I came across Sepp Holzer and attended a workshop and then started an apprenticeship with him and have really been working with him since that time. Um, And so that opened the doorways into all sorts of ways to start to harmonize humans and nature, uh, specifically around water. And so now, because of this connection, I get to work all over the place with different people in different situations. I've worked in more than 20 countries. In 2018, I worked on five continents. Um, And so it's really exciting to be able to see how even with all these different climates, humans are generally dealing with the same sets of issues and the solutions are generally the same. Yeah. Now, when you say work on different climates, what are you actually talking about that you've been doing? Creating decentralized water retention landscapes. And so this can take different forms. Sometimes that's creating a forest because that is a water holding landscape, or sometimes it's creating water bodies, terraces, uh, interventions to enhance the ecological function of the water cycle. Nice. So you're essentially going and install it will designing and installing projects all over the planet in those different yeah, locations. yeah exactly and we really do a pretty rapid fire a simple design that gets all the nuts and bolts on the table and then we pick pieces and really start we move into implementation very quickly so some projects the first trip even will go into the implementation it's been really interesting to see all of these different climates and how the same issues are shared, whether you're in a cloud forest that receives three meters of precipitation or in a very arid landscape on a mesa in Mexico. It's it's the same kinds of disturbances are happening uh, and the same concerns are shared by people from all different cultures and lifestyles. Yeah. 
Now, when we spoke before, when you came and visited back in September of 2018, uh, and you gave a talk to uh, at, at the university here, um, you were talking about this concept that was new to me at that time, and uh, I since read um, a book by Charles Eisenstein, Climate, A New Story, and he went and really echoed what you were saying, and it had to do with climate change, and it has to do with the water cycle, the hydrologic cycle, and the effects of disturbance of the hydrological cycle actually on global climate change. So I'm wondering if you could give a, a bit of a summary of that so we can understand this kind of, I, I think of this as really new and crucial information. Yeah, it's interesting because it's new and crucial information and it's also ancient information. So I think the easiest way to explain is as far back as Plato to people like Victor Schauberger to many people in the modern times, people were connecting the relationship between the water cycle and climate extremes. And so, for example, Victor Schauberger's concept of forestry in Austria, he talks about how bad land management leads to cycles of extreme climate where we have extreme hot temperatures, extreme cold temperatures, extreme weather events, followed by extreme drought. And so you can actually get in this broken water cycle that's a cycle of flood and at the same time drought, and then in the worst cases, fire. Or you can be in this healthy, vibrant system where the water is actually moving through the landscape. If you think water is the blood of the earth, and so these Landscapes are the organs moving that water through the landscape. And when you start to disturb the organs, you're going to have death within parts of the body. And so that's what we're seeing with the large-scale desertification that's been happening. Yeah, so basically, uh, what does disturbance of the water cycle look like? It looks like, so first, an elementary part is the temperature of the soil. So if you clear off all the vegetation, that's a big disturbance in the water cycle. Now the water that used to infiltrate is running quickly downstream. So that leads to flooding, but then followed by drought. But then a way that this is even more starts to connect is that the trees actually produce nuclei for cloud fall, for condensation. Uh, and so in another light, when you remove the vegetation, you actually reduce the amount of precipitation. So you're reducing infiltration and reducing precipitation at the same time. And that's how you end up with some of the what were the most fertile valleys in the world now becoming these barren wastelands like the Fertile Crescent, like the African Sahara, like Australia, like all these different the Tibetan Plateau, all these examples from all around the world. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about trees creating nuclei and how that actually creates precipitation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have the sun driving water off of the ocean, forming water vapor, but that water vapor can't turn into clouds and then rain without a nuclei, a start of something to form around. And so there are salts, which are one type of nuclei, uh, on the coasts and in deserts and with cloud seeding. Then there's ice crystals, which is orographic lift as the water cools. Once ice crystals start to form, the rest of the water can condense around those ice crystals. But then a big one is hygroscopic microorganisms. And so these are bacteria produced in the stomatal cavities of trees and in fungal spores that actually are in the atmosphere in impressively high volumes and actually seeding rainfall, taking that water vapor and putting it into clouds and then rain. And so that has a huge cooling effect. When that water vapor isn't condensed, it forms this warming haze and actually holds in the temperature of the earth overnight. And if you look at global warming figures, our main increase is in nighttime minimum temperature. And now you could go so far as to say that by creating all these concrete jungles, destroying the systems that turned that water vapor into rain, allowing the heat of the earth to go out into the night sky, now there's a warm, humid blanket holding it all in. 
And so we're seeing pretty significant temperature rise in the nighttime minimum temperatures. And that's where the most disturbance is happening around the planet. Whoa. See, that's pretty mind-blowing because conventional science is really um, has it has has contracted the entire conversation of climate change and warming temperatures to carbon in the atmosphere where you're basically tying it into deforestation and the loss of nuclei that raindrops form around and then the non-nucleated moisture which becomes a warm blanketing haze so yeah exactly exactly and it's it's interesting i think it's a perfect example of how science is so reductionistic that it it tries to always ascribe what it can simplify and model and so the water cycle is incredibly complicated and so any climate scientist will tell you the vast majority of heat dynamics on planet Earth are determined by water, between 75 to 95%, depending on who you're talking to. Now, the first climate change scientists, you can't model the water cycle. There's ways it heats up the planet. There's ways it cools off the planet. It exists in three different phases that then in those phase changes have huge amounts of energy that they're either absorbing or releasing. And so they just assumed our impact was neutral and modeled for what they could, which was CO2. But if you if you want to assume a neutral impact of humans on water cycle, you got to remember that over the last 10 centuries, humans have desertified one-third of all of the land on planet Earth. And so that's clearly not a neutral impact. Yeah. So now wait, when you said the 75 to 90% number, what does that actually, like, what does that represent? So that so that so if you break out the global heat dynamics on Earth, how Earth regulates temperature, between seventy-five to ninety-five percent of that is determined by water, by how water moves, by how it holds the moisture in, or sorry, holds the temperature in, by how it holds the temperature between these. It's this great regulating mechanism. You know, the the ice caps help regulate because as they release heat. As they melt, they actually contract heat. And so it's, it's all this interconnected cycle. And so they, they know that between 4% and 11% of the heat dynamics are determined by the carbon cycle. Hmm. And so it, you can see very quickly that the water cycle is actually much more important to how temperature on planet Earth is managed. Yeah. Um, now, you know, on a macro scale, I know you were you were talking about the Amazon rainforest as and you, you use this term that I had never heard before. And it was as a biotic pump. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a theory that started in 2006 um, by two Russian nuclear physicists who started looking at how the physics of water was playing out in the atmosphere. And now we know that trees through a variety of different means one by cooling the temperature by actually respiring water cooling the temperature drawing in more lower pressure systems then also by seeding the moisture in the clouds and then also by shading the earth and enhancing infiltration all of these things lead to more water moving from the coasts inland into the continents and so the Amazon rainforest basin, not only does it drive the water that it receives off of the ocean, but it also feeds the whole continent because that's the pump moving the water from the oceans inland. And so, for example, in the Amazon, they're finding 80% of the precipitation is driven by these hygroscopic microorganisms. Hmm. So if you cut all of the forests at once, it wouldn't just turn into a savanna, it would turn into a desert because they'd receive 20% of their current rainfall. Right. Now, one thing that our listeners may or may not really understand is like the concept of a low pressure system and a high pressure system. Do you want to talk a little bit more how you said that, you know, transpiration of water actually creates a low pressure system and what a low pressure system really means like within atmospheric mm-hmm. circulation? Yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, your lower once you add a lot of moisture to the air, it's going to be lower pressure. So 
all of our storm fronts are going to be these lower pressure systems moving through, bringing all of this moisture inland. Now, low pressure can't, when you have these heat islands, these high pressure areas rising off, it actually pushes against the low pressure and the low pressure can't enter the area that is high pressure. And so it's rerouted to whatever area is lower pressure. Um, And so you could even go so far as to say that a lot of the extreme hurricane events in the southeast, deforestation in the Amazon is increasing the probability of those events because instead of that low-pressure system moving into the continent, feeding all of South America, if instead the heat is pushing against it, it has to go somewhere else. And so you get these really big storm events. Yeah, I think you know when you look at meteorologists, they talk about oh, there's a giant heat dome, you know, this heat dome over the center of the country. And somehow it's it's literally like this dome that moisture goes around that has to actually um, reroute around this dome. And then when I think of low pressure, I think of like a toilet flushing, like low mm-hmm. pressure, kind of, mm, si- kind yeah. of spirals in and sort of brings in moisture. Yeah. And you need nuclei, you need moisture and cool temperatures to bring in moisture. That's really interesting. Um, Another thing that I thought of is when I was in India um, last year, we visited a a wildlife preserve or sanctuary, sort of unofficial wildlife sanctuary. A very um, wealthy guy who was really into conservation had purchased, uh, strategically purchased plots of land around a... Um, government forest reserve to create this more extensive biosphere reserve. And he had rain gauges in that reserve that had now, you know, two decades or more later, it's all grown up into this um, tropical forest there. Um, It's a wet, dry tropics. So it's, you know, it's, it's not wet all the time. It's uh, has a dry season and his rain gauges measured that the rainfall within the forested areas, when they had a drought, it maintained the normal rainfall where the areas, the cleared areas around it, dropped off significantly. And so, I mean, this is hundreds of square kilometers, so it was enough area to really get the effect of, like you're saying, the nuclei from the trees rising up, the higher humidity, greater evapotranspiration and then cooling of the ground surface. So, yeah. yeah. And that reminds me a lot of Willie Smith's in Borneo, where he's done uh, 10,000 hectares, and they've measured a 10% increase in precipitation, not just on their site, but downwind as well, because they're rebuilding that pump. And it's that same thing. And you know, for it's been common knowledge in indigenous cultures for a very long time that forests call in the rain. And scientists always thought, oh, this is stupid. It's because forests happen in high precipitation areas. But now even the scientists are finding that forests call the rain. Yeah, that's crazy. And you know, another thing is the the crazy drought and flood cycle we have, where it's it's almost like the rain is being excluded from greater areas and there's more um there's more moisture in the atmosphere because of mm-hmm. warming temperatures and mm-hmm. so there's more moisture but it's excluded by heat domes from deforested desertified areas and so it just rains more heavily on the places that are have the capacity to receive rain still Exactly, exactly, because the pressure of the system is building. And so all of those storm cells, as they're being pushed around, pushed away by heat islands, their pressure just continues to build. And that's how you get these massive events that are stronger than ever before, but also these incredible periods of drought all at the same time. Yeah. So how do we shift the narrative from a reductionist carbon-based global climate change narrative to a water and carbon global climate change narrative? It's a great question. It's a great question. And I actually see it as a potential bridge issue because right now you have all this debate and turmoil and no one's really presenting any solutions that are 
proven and effective. But if you look around the world where people have managed water, like what you're talking about in India, like what we're talking about in all these different places, once you hold the water, once you manage your natural resources accordingly, all of this life starts to come and you have very tangible results. And so I think almost diverting the question away from this debate of how much is our impact and what should we do about it and all of these things. And let's start working with what works and make sure that future generations will have clean water to drink. That's the first thing we'll die from. That's the thing that most communities are impacted by, by climate change. And so I think we can hopefully all still unify and say, this is an important resource for all humans and we need to start appropriately stewarding it. Yeah. You know, one thing, excuse me, one thing that Charles Eisenstein talked about in his book, he mentioned, he's like, hey, we could go and reduce carbon emissions all over the planet. We could, everybody could meet their goals and we could switch to electric vehicles and we could get off of coal and all renewable. However, we would still have massive ecosystem disturbance, ecosystem disruption, hydrological cycle disruption. And so like the reductionist, the reductionist carbon model doesn't even really give a solution where people can live in abundance. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't actually address the issues that impact human quality of life. And I think that's why the whole movement is very ineffective. If you look at a global scale, as Charles Eisenstein mentions in his book too, if, if it's a war, we're losing the war. The carbon emissions keep going up because it's not tied to how it's impacting human life. It's all in this very off future thing. There's fires now and people being burned alive. There's floods now with people dying. And like you're saying, I think we could get to pre-industrial carbon levels, still have all the same issues with the water cycle and still have a lowering quality of human life because we haven't actually addressed the core concerns. Yeah. Now, have you, have you checked out the Green New Deal at all? I've been reading a little bit about it, but I, I don't know enough about it to, I, I don't know what it actually constitute. Yeah, me neither, actually. I just see but this, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I do think what the Green New Deal is modeled after is actually the best single example of government scale water restoration. The, the, the New Deal put like 10% of the civilian population to work creating decentralized water retention, creating terraces, creating all of these trails that people still use to interact with wildlife, creating forests, doing all of this work to rebuild the ecological function, to stop the Dust Bowl, and to usher in one of the greatest periods of abundance in American history. And so if we modeled the Green New Deal after the original New Deal, and looked at water cycle disturbance as a primary issue, I think it will have a very fruitful outcome for America. If we look at it with this reduction mindset of we need technology, we need more regulation, we need to deal with this carbon CO2 issue, I think it's going to totally miss the point and we're not going to deliver the, the things that actually impact people. Yeah. So you spend your time actually creating the solution to the hydrological fragmentation, right? What, is it, what does it look like to fix this problem? You know? Yeah, you know, my favorite thing is to go back to sites and see and drink from the water that we tapped, swim in the features that were built. And it's interesting because solving the global problem also looks like solving your personal problems. So, for example, I did this project in Australia for a worm farmer. He didn't have enough water and he didn't have enough flat ground. And so we created a series of water features that store the seasonal water and we created terraces for his worm farm. So now, even in these long periods of drought, he has ample water. He's growing a forest back in between these terrace systems. He has more ground to use. So he's solving his own immediate economic concerns of water shortages 
and resource concerns, but he's also feeding into his whole area. So now downstream, there's more consistent water within the system because of his water retention landscape. There's more water for the wildlife. There's more water for the forest systems. He's growing more trees. There's more nuclei in the sky. And so he's addressing his own problems in a way that even if you weren't concerned about the global situation makes a lot of sense, but then he's also addressing it for his neighbors to a certain extent. And he's also uh, improving his own financial situation. And that seems to be the greatest um, criticism of things like the Green New Deal, alternative energy. Oh, we're going to put everybody out to work by closing these different polluting um, factories and it seems like the real solution creates actual abundance and especially on the agricultural level can create financial abundance through higher yields and greater availability of water. Absolutely. If you think every farmer, no matter what they're farming, water is their ultimate capital. Water is the element upon which life builds. 70% of all life is water. And so if you hold more water, from the ocean in the landscape, you will have more life in the landscape. And so for a farmer, that means more productivity, more annual regeneration of the soils. And so it, it actually is just, just from an economic standpoint. And that's not even to bring in, if you want to start opening up the picture into natural disasters and the huge amounts of money that are spent putting Band-Aids on those solutions – it makes a ton of economic sense to implement watershed restoration, one, just to increase productivity of the entire landscape, but two, to mitigate all of these losses in the form of fire, flood, and drought. Seems like the insurance companies should be the ones that are writing the checks for some of these because they're the ones that are going to be saving money in the end. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think they're the ones that we need to start bringing this narrative to because they're very incentivized to do something about it. So you said you've worked on five continents, and I can't remember how many countries you said, something like 20 countries. Or... Yeah, I don't really keep track, but yeah. I'm sure it's over 20 at this point. Yeah, and you said you've worked in massively wet rainforests and dry deserts. Why don't you give us some more, paint some pictures for us. Give us some more stories of what this revitalization looks like in different areas and different climates that you've witnessed on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the best examples, just because it's been in place for so long and, and we've seen the results, this isn't a project I did, but one that Sepp Holzer did with Tamara in Portugal. And so this was a community of 200 people in a place that receives almost no precipitation for 11 months of the year. They were on a deep borehole well. They didn't have enough for any agriculture and they barely had enough for drinking. And they came to Sepp and said, can we even live here? Is this a place where we can have a sustainable community? And now, flash forward a decade or two later, and they have more water than they could use. They're off of the deep boreholes. They're on shallow springs charged by their own water retention landscape. But I think what's most interesting is the impact on the neighbors. The neighbors downstream, when they were doing this work, they did everything they could to stop it. They, they called the police. They did all of these things. But now they love it because they thought they were stealing the water. But now because instead of – they put dams up. Exactly, because yeah. they put dams up in this very dry area. They said, you're stealing our water. You can't do this. But now instead of flood one month followed by drought for 11, they actually have springs that are fed by the water retention landscape uphill. Because a very important part of all of this is it's not just about holding the water in tanks or in plastic-lined ponds. It's actually about returning the water to the earth, recharging the earth's body, rehydrating the organs. And that's what creates this impact, not just on the site itself, but in all the neighborhood and all the surrounding community. Yeah. What are some other different climate types that you've seen this working in so then you could go to the other extreme where you go to the cloud forest in ecuador a place that used to receive such incredible consistent precipitation 
you would never think water would be an issue. But now due to climate extreme, because of a lot of the ecosystem loss that's happening in the area, they have these long dry spells. And so even though in this one area, even though they get three meters of precipitation, they had this area that after just a few months, all the grass was brown and dying and from bad animal management and clearing the forest. And so there we topped a couple of springs for drinking water, but then we created a system of terraces, a couple of paddies, and a larger water feature that hold and store that water so that when they get those huge rainfall events, it's actually buffered. So they're preventing some amount of flooding from happening downstream, but also releasing that back into the landscape so that now at any time of year, there's a lot of water in the earth and there's a lot of growth happening in an area where the grass used to brown out. Hmm. What about, have you done any work or would have suggestions for places like the Sierras in California now, you know, just right after like a, a devastating wildfire, you know, what would some solutions look like there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I know of a project, uh, that was actually in some of those fires where they had done some water retention measures and they had done this before the fires. And so what happens in a system like that, you get these fires, then you get these rains and then you get these floods with mud flow and it gets very messy very quickly and the water retention work that they did actually saved the house in this case because all of the mud flow that would have wiped out the house was held in this basin Mm. Um, and so not only have they been holding the water recharging into the landscape growing more life providing more wild habitat but they actually helped save their house in a in an event like that. Um, And so it would be the same kind of work afterwards, basically looking at these areas, how water is moved through it, and then starting to reestablish vegetative cover, starting to reestablish the soil structure. And a big part of this in the more broken landscapes, you have to first find ways to hold the water. And then once you have the water, you can start to distribute it and grow the biological systems from it. Hmm. What are some of the the oldest landscapes that you've seen this practice? And I mean, I know that you've been to Sepp Holzer's place quite a number of times. I don't know if you want to talk about some of the really more mature systems that you've seen. Yeah. Oh, man. And when you see a place like the Kramatorhof, everyone who goes there can see there's food falling on the ground year round. And Sepp's new farm, too. Literally from the beginning to the end of the year, there's some form of food falling on the ground. Do you you want to give a little background of just like location and... Topography yeah. And stuff, yeah. Yeah. So they're way up in the mountains. The Kramaterhof is in the coldest part of Austria. They call it the Siberia of Austria. And it's on land that the government has determined is basically only useful for maybe some grains and for dairy cows. And in this barren, rocky, steep landscape, SEP created a network of 72 interconnected ponds and water bodies. And so the whole landscape is sub-irrigated. It's naturally irrigated by holding and cycling that water. They have these incredibly productive aquaculture systems, but then they have forestry systems all around the water bodies that then they push animals through to harvest a lot of the natural productivity. And so once you get these very productive sites, SEP had people who would come there and say, why are you feeding these cherries to your pigs? These are better cherries than I can find in the store. And it it puts into perspective that in in these cases, animals are eating higher quality food than humans are in cities. And so it's very possible to have these incredibly naturally productive areas where you're just producing so much that you can't possibly harvest it all. And so the easiest means is to run the animals through it and then market the animals. Yeah. Now, what's the difference when you really start getting – I mean, how many acres is Sepp's place, do you know? So the the Kramatorhof, the family farm, is 120 acres. Um, And then his new place is much smaller. It's around 20 acres. Yeah. So what's it like when you start to scale up these water retention landscapes and you, you know, begin to get into the, you know, 100 acre and, and more? What's the largest landscape that you've worked on? I mean, I've done consultations on what, 5,000 acre properties. Um, but so it's, it's always about maximizing where you can work. 
so what I'm always looking for is where can we make the smallest intervention for the maximum impact? So no, some of these interventions are quite large, but when you factor in the amount of earth moved for the amount of water retained, they're small in comparison to some of the other options on the table. And so it's about finding the places within the landscape where the water is already naturally collecting and then doing what we can to maximize that impact. Um, and another really important note is that decentralizing the systems is a very important part of this. Once you go to centralized systems, whether it's for energy or water, you have so much loss in transmission that it starts to become very inefficient. And so it's hard sometimes for people to understand how you can be pro-water retention, pro-building dams and reservoirs, but anti these big hydropower dams. And it's because these aren't modeled after natural systems. They're actually disturbing natural systems because the water flow is now no longer on natural cycles but on energy demand cycles. So it disrupts fish breeding cycles. But it's also a very ineffective way to do it. They're channelizing water from different parts of the landscape to these large water bodies so that they have the ultimate volume they're looking for. But they're actually even dehydrating the landscape because they're dehydrating more landscape than they're hydrating. Hmm. Um, and so even as you start to look at you know, how to do this on a continental scale, it's very important that it's diverse, small impacts in different parts of the planet so that we let the Earth's natural architecture start to do a lot of the work. Yeah. Now, how do you feel about the key line design system and PA Yeoman's whole like moving water from valleys to ridges and, you know, to some degree, uh, having like, like you're talking about looking at where water's naturally collecting. And I was just thinking how the key line design system in a way is opposite to that, where you're sort of drifting water to the drier parts of the landscape. Do you have yep. opinions about that? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's all based on I, I see a lot of value and I've gained a lot from the key line system. Um, it also was um, it came about on the oldest continent, which is the most consistent geologically. And so I've also seen many places where it would be a very bad idea to move the water from valley to ridge because you might be moving from a clay soil in the valley to a sandy soil on the ridge. And so whereas you could hold that water, now you're actually discharging it into deeper parts of the earth's body that aren't used to receiving them and could potentially even lead to landslides and things like this in extreme cases. So it's it's all within, I think you you got to really look at the situation and the soils and how the water is moving through a site. There are lots of times that I move water laterally as much as possible and do many of the same things. And if you looked at an installation, you'd, they look very similar implemented on the landscape. So there's a lot of correlation, but I've also seen a lot of times where people, particularly in permaculture, get misled by two things. One, holding water high on the landscape. That makes a lot of sense when the right material is there, but I've seen plenty of situations because water is sorting the material as it's carrying everything. And so it's bringing the clay from the ridges to the valleys, essentially. And so if you work in the valleys, you're more likely to find the right material. I've seen plenty of situations where people go through great effort to try and build a water measure up high on their landscape in soils that are not appropriate. And so it's never successful when they could have done something low on the landscape that would have been very successful. So that's that's great in theory, and it works out a lot of times too, but it's also something that people can be misled by. And so similarly, moving water from valley to ridge, there's a lot of situations where it makes a ton of sense, and there's other situations where you don't want to do that at all because it would actually be degradative. Yeah, that's really interesting. You, you said something that I had never thought of before I heard anybody mention the fact that the key line system was developed in Australia and that because it's such an old geology there is a great consistency within that landscape and less just diversity like it's there's a good chance that the soils in this sort of landform are going to be similar to the soils in another landform yeah 
So that's, that's yeah. yeah, yeah. And I gotta say, the more test slices I dig, the less I feel like I know about geology. Because you will just sometimes ten foot different. You have an entirely different soil profile, and so it's really. I think that's always a critical step if we really want to be stewards of the earth and move the earth in a way that's beneficial, we need to understand what types of earth we're moving. It's not just about where the contour lines fall. It's about what's the actual consistency and quality of the earth that we're working with. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about your due diligence process for building some kind of pond? Because that's kind of, you're, you're kind of hinting and leading at that, but I think that that's a really interesting thing for people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's, it's a, there's three different big pieces that you're looking for. One is the land shape. Where is the natural land shape in such a way that you can make a small intervention, a small dam that creates a very long water body, for example. Um, and then number two is where is the water coming from? How much catchment area is feeding a given area? Could you increase that catchment area? What are the things could be done there? And then three, the most important piece is the geology with where you're working. And so the best scenario is when you have a geology where you have some impermeable layers on top of – sorry, some permeable layers on top of an impermeable layer – and so you'll actually have times a year that water is flowing through that, and then you tie your water body into that impermeable layer so that you're catching not just the surface flow, but the subsurface flow as well, so you create a much more alive water body. Yeah, so what is your actual, like, how many holes do you usually dig? I mean, you know, let's say you're going to look at, look at an acre pond or something like that. Like, wh- yeah. what's your sort of process because I remember you telling me that you you don't send soil tests away. You're 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 feeling this by hand from your own experience. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we're on a you know, for example, on a twenty acre property, we might dig six test slices and we might dig twenty based on what we're finding. If it's pretty consistent and we can say, okay, we'll check out a couple of pond sites, see what's there, see what's in the ridges, so that we so that I start to build an idea of what. The entire geology might look like and so sometimes that's just a couple of holes and everything's very similar and other times everything's very different and it it's many different holes um, and so we're all and another really key part of my due diligence is assessing the goals of the client and making sure that the work that we're doing actually is going to deliver the life quality enhancement that they're looking for in one way or another um, and so then by walking the site, seeing how water moves through, reading the vegetation for what water might be in the ground and what water is occupying different areas for what durations, and then actually digging, feeling the geology down to 10, 15 feet sometimes so that we know what all we'd be working with. And then that gives not only the idea of can we do it or not, but how would we do it? How long would it take? What time of year? All of these kinds of details, which are very important. So you're looking at these soil cross sections and you're getting, you're getting down in this hole and you're like, okay, here the soils change. We have a different type. You're looking at a different color, a different, you know, there's cobbles in this one. And so each one you're kind of taking and you're doing some level of analysis on this soil, um, what, what are you doing to each of these soil types? And then how are you kind of making your decision about what you're going to do? Yep, yep. So I do basically a rough hand texturing on each layer. Sometimes if, you know, a layer is cobble, you don't need to do a hand texturing on that. You can see that. But you're doing, I'm doing a hand texturing to determine the percentage clay in the given material. Um, and then I'm also looking for any visual cues. For example, one thing that you see a lot is maybe there's a a gravelly area, but there's little iron or calcium deposits on all of the gravel. And so you know that water flows through there. That's what's creating that. Um, And so you can say maybe you're in a place in a dry time of year, but you can say, oh, at at some point in some years, water flows through this underground river. And so you can actually capitalize on that. So there's lots of cues, but yeah, basically doing a hand texture of the material as it comes out and noting how deep all of the layers are. Do we have an impermeable layer that will hold the water to tie the dam into? And then do we have the material to build the watertight core of the dam itself? 
And then any of the material that's not ideal can be used for the embankments on either side of that clay core. So a lot of people pay a geotechnical engineer a lot of money to analyze each one of these soil layers. And in fact, that whole analysis part can be somewhat of a, uh, it can inhibit the the whole process because of the amount of capital it takes just to do that due diligence. So, you know, how, how does, what, what did you go to school for? Like, how, how did you learn to be able to do the hand test? You might just say like the sniff test on soils at the level where you can then safely build large reservoirs, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, your margin for error, like you, if you build a, a large reservoir and you've, made an error with those soils, I mean, you could have a very large problem if you have a dam failure. So, Absolutely. Catastrophic yeah. loss of, of all sorts of things. So yeah, it is very important. And you know, I'll say the biggest thing that I did was when I was a kid, I was always playing in the streams. I was always building little water features. I was always playing in the mud. I was always building forts. So I got a very good feeling from an early age of how the different types of material could be used for different things and how some materials held water and others didn't. Um, I did go to school for ecology and I did do some soils classes that were somewhat useful. Um, But then I even did more with um, a very good forester who's based out of Missoula, um, Mark Vandermeer, who just teaches a very simple way to do hand texturing. And this they'll teach you in any soils class in university. But doing a hand texturing to discern the amount of sand, silt, and clay in a given material within your hand. So you're making either balls or rolling out worms or pushing ribbons and seeing how does this material join to itself. Um, And then if anything is ever in question, building models. And so actually using the material that you're working with, and sometimes I'll find a layer and I'm not sure if it's water impermeable or not. And so we'll actually expose some of it, we'll fill it with water, we'll see if the water infiltrates or not, how quickly it infiltrates. And so even even after doing a lot of these, I'm still running experiments to prove proof of concepts if anything is in question. Um, And that's an important part of the learning. And then... You know, I worked for Sep for a number of years or worked with Sep for a number of years, seeing him do it different ways in different landscapes. And that started to give me the confidence. And then I spent also at the same time a number of years experimenting on my own where I wasn't working for other people, but it was this land trade agreement. Um, and that was very critical as well. So now now I feel comfortable going in places and doing these things. And a big piece of it too is it's important to under-promise and over-deliver. And so if there, if we run across something and I say I'm 75% positive it's going to work, I'll say, you know, it's kind of 50-50. I'm not sure. This is a little risky. Maybe we shouldn't do it. I make very sure to explain all of the potential issues to the clients so that it's their decision. I'll provide the recommendation, but it's ultimately them that's deciding how much they want to push different things if it's not a straightforward scenario. Yeah. Now, another thing that's interesting about your work from our conversations and such is that um, you don't really do a drawn out design, that you will go somewhere and sort of design maybe you'll do a consultation then come back or even like you said you'll come and do an installation on the fly and that's another large expense that often inhibits people um what what do you think how's that process working for you and do you ever wish that you could take more time to do more like graphic planning of sites i mean i i should clarify i do a concept drawing where it's my kindergarten level drawing of here's the ponds and here's the terraces and here's how it's all connecting. But for me, I think a big piece of it is just how I learned to design was on the landscape. So I've seen him draw once ever. Um, And so he's reading the landscape, getting the visual cues, seeing it in his mind's eye, what should be in each spot and then going about and creating it. And so because that's how I learned, that's how I operate, where everything I design, 
I see in my mind's eye first and then I take it to the map and draw it in so that the people that I'm communicating it with can understand. Um, and it's funny because actually I get a lot of people who ask me for remote consulting and all of these things and I always turn it down because I honestly don't believe I can really provide much value remotely because I didn't learn how to design based off of contour maps or things like this. I learned how to design off of seeing what's on the landscape, smelling it, feeling it, feeling the soils. And so I don't really get any ideas from a map even. I have to actually see and be on the landscape to understand what I think should be done. And it, for me, it would be very easy to mislead someone if I was just working off of pictures they had sent in the map. I could tell them to do the exact wrong thing, not intending to do so, but just because I don't have enough information from the site. Yeah. Now, do you have any major mistakes or things that have gone wrong that you'd be willing to share with us? I have had some equipment issues early on, which I can't go into too much detail. Um, but I, I mean, plenty, plenty of mistakes, especially with that. I mean, that first place I was on, I tried to seal that pond three times before I created anything that actually sealed. Um, and, you know, plenty of issues in management as well. It, not understanding when things need to happen at different times. Um, but I was, I've been very cautious to once I started working for other people to really make sure that everything I did, I feel really good about. Um, and anything that I don't have enough information or knowledge, I basically make up for with hard work. So any mistakes, uh, you go back and fix, um, or you make sure are done right and things like that. And, and there's been certainly situations where, pushing limits that we shouldn't have like for example one that comes to mind is we're creating this recirculation system for a pond we wanted to put it in a way that didn't involve any concrete to have a more natural solution it didn't end up working so i ended up having to you know kind of take apart a few rocks and actually set them in cement um and so definitely stuff like that but we're we're usually able to work out any kinks um, during the process and it's there are always things that happen whether it's a little slumping from the soil getting too dry but there's such minor things that it's it's you know nothing that a couple of minutes with a shovel can't take care of yeah so you haven't taken out any houses or anything like that dams no <laughs> fortunately no houses no landslides no slippage anything like that. And I would say every situation where, uh, like another one that comes to mind with a water body that's not holding like it should, um, we knew going into it, I basically in the construction hit this old road base. We were running out of time for the project. I knew that really we needed to kind of redo a lot of things because there was this gravel layer at the bottom. We didn't have enough time and money to. And so the client understood because we hit this thing that we didn't know about, there was a possibility for it to not fill up as much as we wanted to. And and that is what happened. We do need to come back and rework that water body at some point. Um, but it wasn't anything that wasn't expected to a certain extent because we knew going in that we hit this part of the earth that made our feature not a sure bet anymore. So you've traveled around a lot, right? Is what is the level of interest? I mean, I know you have your clients and such, but obviously if we're going to restore and revitalize the hydrologic systems of the planet, we need like major effort. You know, it needs to be like a planetary new deal here because hydrology is connected. The atmosphere is connected and the, you know, it's, it's integrated. All the forests are integrated with the circulation and moisture on the planet. What kind of interest and rising interest and, and consciousness are you seeing in your many travels to all these different locations? You know, I'm really seeing it take off everywhere in the world. I'm seeing that as soon as people know it's possible, they want to run quickly in that direction. 
Um, but most people just don't even know what's possible still. They're fed all the fear-based media from different outlets, and, and so they have no idea. And so in a lot of these places that I go, we give a presentation that's a public presentation or we give a workshop. And oftentimes there are people there that also want to do a project. And so every place we go, it usually ends up leading to more and more projects in each spot and also connecting with other people who are already working in watersheds in different ways that are getting a wave of new energy, understanding that their work that they thought was very important is even more important than what they had realized because it has global ramifications. Yeah. And do you see as the same for Sep Holder's work? I mean, what's, what's the sort of receptivity Oh, world. yeah. I mean, the the people that he's working for now are all the powerful people in the world. I mean, for example, his son, Yosef, is doing a project for the oldest organic winery in Europe where they see what's coming. They see very well that these water shortages are coming and they want to get ahead of the issue. And so and I, I'm seeing the same thing. The The wealthy and powerful are starting to become aware to this and adopt it in a pretty quick way whether they have their own interests in mind or others it's hard to say but either way it's beneficial and i think now we need this mass wave of awareness so that people understand we've been living in this old water paradigm which comes from a very logical place but doesn't suit us anymore so there's this concept of the old and the new water paradigm the old water paradigm as civilization started the way that we dealt with our waste was throwing it into the streets and letting the water carry it away and so standing water usually led to disease and illness waterborne illness death plague all of these different issues and so it became a matter of life and death to drain the water away as we develop now we still do this even though we have more sanitary ways of dealing with our waste so the, the issue that's there is no longer an issue, but we're still, just because we're in this old paradigm, we're still draining water as part of development, where we actually need to start retaining water as part of development to now move into a more balanced water cycle. Yeah. Now, one thing you said you know, struck me as just uh, uh, some sort of hurdle or, or challenge, because it seems like the people that could afford to bring you or Sepp Holzer over to their part of the world to create this paradise water retention landscape, like you said, are the rich and powerful. Um, yet, if only the lands that are under the control of the rich and powerful are brought into hydrologic integrity, that doesn't really fix our, you know, because we're also interconnected. Um, you know, how, how can we really bring this out of the hands of the privileged and into the hands of the many? I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where we'll really start to build traction. It's great that these wealthy and powerful are starting to do positive things, but we need all people acting. And like you're saying, until the commons are starting to participate in the regeneration of ecosystems, it's, it's not going to achieve our desired impact. And I think it actually fits very well because the most needy people are also the ones that are very happy to do something a little bit differently if it improves their quality of life. And so they're the most incentivized to do this. And there are lots of ways they can do different things. I think one of the best examples of all of this is actually done by peasant farmers in India. There's this movement with the Flow Partnership in Rahindra Sin where this movement of peasant farmers created 11,800 decentralized water bodies with their own labor, with no equipment, just these small decentralized water bodies. Now, the impact of that was they brought five rivers back to life, rivers that used to be year-round that were then seasonal are now year-round again, and they brought water back to 250,000 wells that had gone dry. And so this is just a movement of the many pulling together, creating these water congresses, saying we need to steward our water, acting where they can, and achieving really fantastic results. Yeah, you know, when we were in, we, we went to Rajasthan, and I visited some, not the same project, but there's actually a lot of different organizations that are pretty darn large-scale, people-powered 
um, you know, Gandhian movements to restore watersheds and, you know, in small villages and people that are subsistence farmers and everything. And I was incredibly impressed at the scale that I witnessed um, of these water retention landscapes. Um, and and the question lies, like like India, because of their history, the culture, because of some of the examples in not too distant history, like Mahatma Gandhi, who really like brought together the nation for a common purpose. They seem like socially there is this capacity for people there. It's, it's, it's very much ingrained in their cultural story to be able to get together and do these massive projects for the good Mm -hmm. of the whole. Like they just get it. There's not a big learning Mm -hmm. curve. And, you know, I, I, I've, since I've been, back in the u.s and seen that i i just i wonder all the time about how do we how how does our culture that is like me me it's built on i mean not you know i it's built on domination it's built on colonialism it's built on a family going out and creating their own palace and property boundaries and creating your paradise within that and i'm gonna look out for mine and it's like it's not communitarian at its basis. So I've thought a lot about how can this disjointed Western colonialist culture actually shift over to these really crucial communitarian values because we all share the water, the forests and the atmospheric circulation. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I still don't know how, some of these examples from India could actually translate to this different mentality and this different kind of pattern and understanding of land ownership and fragmentation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you there. And having seen a lot of different places in the world, I can say I have the least hope for this to be adopted in America of every place that I've seen. And I think a big part of that is, People are too fed, housed, and entertained. Um, and as long as those basic needs are met, there's not going to be a big movement of people because they're just too sedated, too comfortable, essentially. And if you go to places like in South America, in Asia, in Africa, there's a lot of incentive for these things to be adopted. And it's going to result in a big change in quality of life very quickly. Whereas those same kind of things in the United States, it's, it's not going to change. I mean, it would have immense long-term impacts on future generations, but on the current generation, it's not going to change the way that we're living as much as it would in those much needier places. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like to some degree, it's, it's still like a, a, a cultural novelty here. Like, oh, I'm into permaculture and I'm going to make my own little eco spot, you know, and I'm even going to teach my friends and my neighbors, but anybody can just turn their back and close their eyes and there's no real consequence, you know, to them immediately. So, yeah, I don't know what it's going to take. However, I I just saw um, an article and it was about how the uh, amount of vegetation on the planet has increased mm-hmm. specifically in India and China. A yeah. lot of it's these small scale tree planting, a lot of it's government, you know, doing major restoration. I mean, I think the, in India, they set the world record for like the most trees planted in 24 hours. It was in the millions. Yeah, I mean, these, yeah. these efforts, I, you know, I was like, wow, this is like permaculture in action here. And I see these things. I'm like, yes. And man, <laughs> living in a living in a a fragmented culture that has you know had the the grid of property ownership overlaid within this landscape it's just we just have these hurdles that i just don't know where that where the shift is going to come and where the tide's going to turn so i don't want to leave this on like a depressing note you know um, yeah 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 well and i i think it's difficult because a lot of the a lot of what's out there in terms of environmentalism is really making people who live a very high-end lifestyle that is by nature extractive to other parts of the world and other cultures making them feel less guilty about living that way and i think there's a huge amount of potential in 
people, instead of trying to alleviate their guilt, actually starting to work with the things that are going to directly impact not only themselves, but their fellow brothers and sisters. And that's where very quickly people start to have these very fulfilling relationships that are very impactful and powerful. And so I think it'll actually be in the interconnectivity of people that there is a lot of hope. Yeah. Yeah, so we can just hope that in this country we feel we start to feel some more interconnectivity. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think in America there's a very good economic sense to be made of all of this. How, let's let's actually look at what our farmers need. Let's actually look at the resources that we're all using, and some especially now with these disasters and. Even if you just want to approach it from an economic standpoint, watershed restoration makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And actually, I mean, as sad as it is in the U.S., going after the economic argument and going after the insurance companies, right, and going just right for the money is probably – that's probably going to be the best use of your time is to go straight for the money in watershed restoration. Yeah. And just knowing that the results of a restored watershed are going to be the same here hydrologically as they are in an India or a China where yeah. it's a people-powered endeavor. So, And there are these great examples all around the world now that we can really hold up and say, here's where people have done this. So like in China with the lowest plateau, 2.27 million acres restored where the average incomes in that area doubled after the project. And so it, there are it's, – it's, I think it's actually a great time to be in where we're all very connected. Information can spread like wildfire. And we have all of the examples in the world that we need to say, hey, here are things that we can do to solve all of these issues. Uh, now it's just a matter of putting the pieces of the puzzle together and getting people to agree enough to work on the same page. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, how can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you and all that? Yeah, uh, elementalecosystems.com is our webpage. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from people through that. And uh, that's really the best resource. Also, holterpermaculture.us. Um, and you can learn more about SEP if you want to learn more about um, – Sepp Holzer or the Kramaterhof, seppholzer.at and kramaterhof.at are the two websites there. Now, have you ever thought of um, either teaching classes or opening up some of your projects to uh, like having it a, you know, a, a teachable experience? Because I think that a lot of people would, would gain a lot of value of going through just some of the processes you talked about, about digging a test pit, where are you going to dig a test pit, and then getting down in that hole and really like figuring some of these things out. Have you ever considered that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's on the horizon. And I have done work, like even this past year, the project in Australia was a workshop where people came along for the whole installation. And and so I'm definitely open to doing that. We have a whole list of volunteers that want to come and help on projects. It just... We need a homeowner that's interested in that um, or a site owner. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But we are, we do have some things in the works to basically not this year, but probably next year or the following start actually training up more people because we're at the point where, you know, I'm pretty much booked through almost this whole summer already and there's more projects coming in the door every day and so we're rapidly getting to the point where we need more people who can implement this type of work Um, and so I definitely in a year's time or so we'll start really putting a lot of more efforts into that space nice great well it was so nice to talk to you Zach and great to catch up and uh, I really hope that uh you get back to oregon soon and we can catch up some more yeah definitely it was so great seeing everything you got going on there and corvallis is such a great place and i'm I'm always a listener to your podcast so it was really awesome to be on cool all right so nice talking to you zach good luck with everything yeah thank you you too all right take care Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.